Welcome to your Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now it's time for our reading in the New Testament. And our verses will come from the book of Mark, chapter 4, verse 26. We'll read through to chapter 5, verse 20. Now God promises that His harvest will be magnificent and prolific, the best fruit ever grown. You know, your witness may be weak and your efforts may seem to influence so few. But the Word of God is a powerful growth agent. Keep your eyes on the great harvest to come and don't let bad soil or weeds discourage you from faithful service and witness. Jesus used this parable to explain that although Christianity had very small beginnings, it would grow into a worldwide community of believers. When you feel alone in your stand for Christ, realize that God is building a worldwide kingdom. He has faithful followers in every part of the world. Your faith, no matter how small, can join with that of others to accomplish great things. Now, the lake that we'll read about here in Scripture today in the New Testament is, of course, the Sea of Galilee, a body of water 680 feet below sea level and surrounded by hills. Winds blowing across the land intensify close to the sea, often causing violent and unexpected storms. The disciples were seasoned fishermen who had spent their lives fishing on this huge lake. But uh, during this squall, they panicked. Problems occur in every area of life. Storms come, don't they? The disciples needed rest, but they encountered a terrible storm. Now, the Christian life may have more stormy weather than calm seas. As Christ's followers, be prepared for the storms that will surely come. Don't surrender to the stress, but remain resilient and recover from setbacks. With faith in Christ, you can pray, trust, and move ahead. When a squall approaches, lean into the wind and trust God. The disciples lived with Jesus, but they underestimated Him. They did not see that His power applied to their very own situation. Jesus had been with His people for 20 centuries, and yet we, like the disciples, underestimate His power to handle crises in our lives. The disciples did not yet know enough about Jesus, and we can make the same excuse. Although we cannot be sure why demon possession occurs, we know that evil spirits can use the human body to distort and destroy people's relationship with God and likeness to Him. Even today, demons are dangerous, powerful, and destructive. Now, while it's important to recognize their evil activity, we should avoid any curiosity about or involvement with demonic forces or the occult. If we resist the devil and his influences, he will flee from us. And with that, let's begin our reading today here in the New Testament. February 20th, the New Testament, Mark chapter 4, verse 26, through chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus also said, The kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows. But he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crops on its own. First a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of the wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle, for the harvest time has come. Jesus said, How can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It is like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds. 
but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches, and birds can make nests in its shade. Jesus used many similar stories and illustrations to teach the people as much as they could understand. In fact, in his public ministry, he never taught without using parables. But afterward, when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? they asked each other. Even the winds and waves obey him. So they arrived at the other side of the lake, in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of two thousand pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, No, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you, and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region, and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed at what he told them. Psalm 37, verses 30 through 40. In this psalm here today, 
we'll learn the difference between the godly and the unrighteous, or the good and the evil, and how they stack up against each other. There are contrasts here in this psalm. We're told that the godly are smart because they get their wisdom from God. They've made God's law their own, so they're walking in God's path. Now, the wicked are quite different. The wicked hide, and they stay in the darkness because the wicked, they don't like the light any more than the devil likes the light. So they wait in dark places to ambush other people along the way. But uh, the godly person gets honored by God. As we look around the world, we see that uh, there are many wicked and ruthless people that do bad things and cause harm to other people. And it seems to us when we see them, they, they look like they're just flourishing and doing quite well in the world. And uh, we can often become a little concerned about that or even jealous. But then this scripture tells us here today in Psalms that you turn your head for a moment and then look back and you see uh, how the mighty, the so-called mighty, have fallen. The wicked just perish. All of a sudden, they're gone. And again, the contrast continues. When you look at those who are good people, people that you know are godly people, you see a future awaiting them and you want to be more like them. And then we're told something very positive and very reassuring, and that is no matter what situation we're in, God rescues His people. The Lord rescues the godly ones. Psalm 37, verses 30 through 40. The godly offer good counsel. They teach right from wrong. They have made God's law their own. So they will never slip from His path. The wicked wait an ambush for the godly, looking for an excuse to kill them. But the Lord will not let the wicked succeed, or let the godly be condemned when they are put on trial. Put your hope in the Lord. Travel steadily along His path. He will honor you by giving you the land. You will see the wicked destroyed. I have seen wicked and ruthless people flourishing like a tree in its native soil. But when I looked again, they were gone. Though I searched for them, I could not find them. Look at those who are honest and good, for a wonderful future awaits those who love peace. But the rebellious will be destroyed. They have no future. The Lord rescues the godly. He is their fortress in times of trouble. The Lord helps them, rescuing them from the wicked. He saves them, and they find shelter in Him. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. The godly are showered with blessings. The words of the wicked conceal violent intentions. We have happy memories of the godly, but the name of a wicked person rots away. God, thanks for, for your grace. Thanks for loving us. Thank you for the opportunity to come in here and just share with these, with these folks here. Thank you that you show us your grace so that we don't deserve it. That you're good to us so that we don't deserve it. Thank you for, for Advent that we just came through. That God, you, you came to be with us. I just pray that that would become beautiful to us more and more. And I just pray that today as we, uh, we look in the Gospel of Mark, that you would speak to us. That you'd reveal your, yourself to us through your word. And so we just invite you to come. If you don't show up, this is going to be really dumb. 
And so we need you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, our text for today is going to be Mark 6, 30 through 44. So it'll be on the screen, but if you want to look it up, you're more than welcome to. So Mark 6, 30 through 44. It reads, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they'd no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you, loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they'd found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So this is the word of the Lord for this morning. So a little before this took place, in chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus had sent out his disciples two by two into the surrounding towns and villages, and he told them to speak on his behalf with authority. He told them not to take much stuff with them, so much so it was kind of weird. Like, Peter, don't take two pair of sandals, take one. Like, don't take multiple, you know, garments with you, just take a few. Don't take much stuff, but go on my behalf and speak to the peoples with authority. He wanted them to trust him. He wanted them to rely on on God's Spirit, on the Holy Spirit, for provision, for strength, for courage. And they're to proclaim what? Well, chapter 6, verse 12 said, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Go proclaim repentance. What's repentance? We hear that a lot around here. A good definition I found, theologian Wayne Grudem, he says that repentance is heartfelt sorrow for sin. A renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So in sum, it's, hey, I'm going to quit doing my thing, and I'm going to follow you. What do you say is true? What do you say is good? And I want to do that. So what you have is, is coming up to this point, you have a band of disciples that are, that are going from town to town, two by two, and, and boldly proclaiming repentance to the people. 
Jesus told them in verse 11, And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. This, this happened directly after they left Nazareth and nobody listened to them. And they didn't believe and they mocked Jesus. And so Jesus performed no miracles there. And I think, I think in many ways this is a sign. This is an example for the church today and through the centuries. Right? What do I mean by that? Proclaim repentance in Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. So what we see here is that the gospel demands a response. The the message of Jesus demands a response. Repent from your sin. If you have wounds, the invitation is that Jesus can heal you, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus cares for you. If, If you have personality vulnerabilities, Jesus wants to redeem those. Jesus wants to make you more and more into his image. He beckons us to himself. It demands a response. So you either respond by repenting or you remain in your sin. And and what we know from the Bible is that this repentance is an ongoing activity. It's an ongoing activity. We're going to get to the text. I'm just building up. I'm I'm leading us to, to to what we just read. And and what we know about repentance is that one of the marks of a healthy church is ongoing repentance. Ongoing um, conforming to Christ and what Christ is and what Christ looks like and and who is Jesus. Because what we know, friends, is is that sin isolates us. It isolates us from friendship, from God, from one another. And to combat that, This is the reason we engage in Christian community. It's the reason that we are so passionate about what we call community groups. Where we get close enough to other Christians that we can engage one another. Paul talks a lot about in the New Testament about bearing one another's burdens. We don't just poof in an instant change. We need one another. Growth and change is is painfully difficult takes time, and it's a place where we're to spur one another along in our faith. And so, I, and so I know this, and this is what's really difficult, I think, a lot of times in church, is that if you don't want to change, a healthy church is going to be a really uncomfortable place to be. I've experienced that. You might be experiencing that now. But a healthy church, if, if they're doing this, it's going to be an extremely uncomfortable place to be. Why? Because a healthy church is going to constantly be calling us, you, me, calling us to become more and more like Christ. Calling us to be more and more like Christ. And I love the Gospels. I love Mark. I love, because we see the person of Jesus at work. We see him at work. We see him in action. And we can't ignore it, because right now what's interesting is that we live in a culture that likes the idea of Jesus. Likes the idea of Jesus, but not the real Jesus, because, because we want a Jesus that we can create. We want a Jesus that we can construct, a Jesus that we make up. But the problem is when we do that, when we, when we create a Jesus that fits our preferences and our desires and the things that we like and the things that we want, what we're doing is we're creating an idol for ourselves. We're really just worshiping ourselves. And so we must look at Christ and become like him, not the other way around. We don't 
invite Jesus to look at us and conform to our preferences. Right? And so in this text, the disciples come back together after traveling around from village to village, calling people to repent and believe in Jesus. They're, they're exhausted. They're tired. They're spent. They've been running around. They were, you know, rebuked and mocked in, in Nazareth. And now they're here. And we see a few things from this text. First, we see Jesus showing radical compassion. And secondly, Jesus invites us to participate in his work. And thirdly, Jesus provides. So let's look at this idea of Jesus showing radical compassion. So we read through the text, but I'm going to read verse 33 and 34 again. It says, Now many saw them going and and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. What's interesting is, let's, let's think about this. Have you ever, think, think about it, have you ever been so busy to the point where you just wanted to get some space? Have, have you been so busy where you just wanted to get alone? You just wanted everybody to just leave you alone. You wanted to get some space. You didn't want anybody to bother you. You just need some time for yourself, right? Well, duh, we've all been there. We've probably been there often in this season. And at this point, what we have to realize, we have to really feel this, is that Jesus and his, his ragtag tag group of disciples, they were exhausted. They were spent. They were tired. They've been traveling from town to town on foot, teaching and serving. Now they meet up back together, and they're spent. They're done. They're exhausted. It's interesting, the details in the text. The text tells us that they didn't even have time to eat. They're, they're hungry. I don't know about you, but man, when I haven't eaten in a while, I get really like annoying and frustrated and mean. These guys are just, they're tired. They're hungry. They're done serving people. They want to go sleep and eat and hang out and kick it with, with the other disciples, right? They just want to have some time for them. So they go into a boat. They're attempting to go to a desolate place, probably staying fairly close to the bank. And what's the text say next? He went, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he what? He had compassion on them. He had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. This is beautiful. Why? Because it tells us a little bit about Jesus' character. He could have easily dismissed the crowd. He, he could have easily uh, dismissed the crowd. He could have taken the boat a little bit further into the water so that, so that they couldn't have seen him. And to be honest, we really couldn't blame him for that. I wouldn't blame him for that. He's exhausted and he's hungry, but he doesn't do that. What does he do? He shows compassion on the people. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. See, compassion, compassion is concern for the suffering and the misfortune of other people. Jesus shows compassion. Do you get that? Do you feel that? Do you see that in this text? He continually shows compassion. And what we have to realize, uh, even when we think about us and our life, is what's the opposite of compassion? And I would say one of the things that comes to mind is just flat-out indifference. See, sometimes the worst thing we can do is we can simply be indifferent. 
I just don't care. I just don't care. And I'm not naive. I know that we can't fix all the problems in the world. We can't fix all the problems even in this city. But when there's someone hurting, when there's someone suffering right in front of us, what do we do? What is our response? I'm tired. Had a long week. The kids are like little demons running around, right? Like, I'm just tired. I don't have anything to give. And I don't, I don't want us to, to feel, to be motivated by guilt, but what we have to see is to be like Christ is to show compassion. Not just when we feel like it. Not just when it's convenient. To be like Christ is to show compassion. Not only that, but to do it when we're tired. To show compassion when we're just done. When we're spent. When we're exhausted. And, and what we know what we, what we remind ourselves constantly, but I don't think we look at it through this lens, is that Jesus showed us ultimate compassion. Knowing our fate apart from the cross would be death. He took upon himself our penalty and our debt. That's ultimate compassion. Our misfortune was, was death. So he went over the top in showing us compassion. And this should be of great comfort to us. This should be a great example in regards to how we treat people. And then, and then a second thing happens. Jesus invites us to participate in his work. Verse 35 through 38 says this. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away. Send those people. Send them away. Tell them to go to the surrounding countryside and villages. Tell them to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they'd found out, they said five and two fish. So it grew late. Think about this. This means that Jesus would have been teaching for hours, all day. Listening to people's story answering questions, healing the sick, serving the destitute, investing and interacting in people. And what happens? Jesus invites the disciples to participate in his work of showing compassion and serving these people. He invites them into his work. The disciples, see, they, they noticed some things. They noticed it's going to be dark soon. These people got to eat. They're hungry. I mean, they're hungry. If the disciples are hungry, they know that everybody else there is just start. They're, they're hungry. And Jesus tells them to give them something to eat. I love their response because it reminds me of us. It reminds me of us. And Jesus is so patient. Their response is, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? Now this is, if you haven't noticed, this is sarcasm. It might even be disrespect. 200 denarii would have roughly been a year's wage for us. So they're basically like, hey Jesus, so you just want us to go out and buy like 30, this is up Arlington, you want us to go out and buy like $100,000 worth of bread and just give it to everybody? We're broke. I don't know if you noticed, but we don't have any money. Yeah, that sounds like a great plan, Jesus. Good thinking. And look at his response to this. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. I love this because he doesn't even acknowledge their tone. 
He doesn't say, all right, so let's, let's step back. We, I need to rebuke you. I need to tell you how you're wrong. He just says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Go and see. And this is just like us. He's calling them to participate in something, and they don't see any way that it could possibly work. It's too big of a task. There's thousands of people. How on earth is this possible? There's no way. There's no way, Jesus. And let me make this really practical. Have you ever seen a need, right? And God began to move in your heart to do something about it. And you begin to get stirred. You're like, man, I really feel led to, to do something to try and meet this need. And at first you were humbled, you were honored, you were, you know, stirred up emotionally, you were going to engage in this need, you were going to start to do something about it. But then what happened? The enormity of the problem became apparent to you. You realize how big it is. You start serving somebody and they, and they disregard you. You serve somebody and they don't say thanks. And you're just, you're just broke. You're like, forget that. Right? And you freak out because you realize the need. You realize the enormity of it. And I want us to realize something in this passage, and I think we all need to hear this. I think I need to hear this. If Jesus is who he said he was, if Jesus is the Son of God, then he doesn't need the disciples' five loaves and two fish. He doesn't need it, right? He could have spoken the fish and loaves into existence by the creative power of his word. And he did that, but he asked them to bring what they had. He didn't need what they had. He could have just disregarded the disciples. I've got this one. Just go, go take a nap. I've got this one. So why didn't he? Why did he tell him to bring him their five loaves and two fish? I think it's because he wanted to strengthen their faith. He wanted to strengthen their faith. He wanted the disciples to trust him. He invited them to participate in his work. Listen to me. Knowing full well that they didn't have what it took to accomplish the task. Bring what you have. Bring what you, He knows it's not going to be enough. Bring what you have. He knows this, but listen, he, he invites them. He just says, bring, bring what you have. And this, and this is awesome, the last part. Lastly, what we see is that Jesus provides, right? So verse 39 through 44. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Verse 42, And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets, full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So we see Jesus' miraculous provision. This is a miracle, right? Miraculous provision. He took the disciples' meager resources and he provided sufficiently. He does the same with us. He does the same with us. He does the same with you. Jesus, the need's too great. 
Jesus, people don't even care. Jesus, I don't know how we're going to meet the demand of all the suffering and all the pain. Jesus, I, I don't have the words to say. Jesus, I don't feel adequate to answer their questions. And like in this story, Jesus responds, bring what you have and trust me. Bring what you have and trust me. We see this elsewhere. Jesus moves in the lives of those who know that they need him. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In Mark 2.17, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came to, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus did no mighty work in Nazareth. Why? Because of their unbelief. He's calling us to belief. He's calling us to faith. He's calling us to trust Him. See, religion, spirituality, it says that the good people are in, and Keller says this all the time, Tim Keller, he says, you know, religion says that the good people are in and the bad people are out. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news because that's not the Bible at all because the Bible teaches us that we're all bad. We're all bad. The Bible teaches us that anyone and everyone who comes to Jesus and puts their hope in him will find rest. That's a message we need to meditate on as a people, as a culture. Because when I look around, I don't see a lot of rest. I see a lot of, I've got to fix myself so that God will accept me. I've got to be good enough. I've got to do more. We know the theology in our head, but we don't, we don't really believe it. We don't really believe it often. It's a cool quote. Arkant Hughes says, Jesus only worked when the loaves were put into his hands and willing consecration or willing devotion. They trusted him. He says, we're only required to bring what we have. And then he says, will you give? This is the way the bread of life goes out to the world. His provision was complete. His provision was total. His provision was satisfying this morning. So if you're a Christian today, how is God inviting you to practice faith in your life right now? How's God inviting you to practice faith? Or a better question might be, what marks you? Is your life marked more by faith or by fear? I just, I believe that this is how God works, but I think God's calling Veritas to pray and plan for things that we're not going to be able to accomplish without his divine intervention. I mean, when when you see this text, you don't see it possible. It's not possible without God. It's a nice, pretty cliche, but it's true and it's hard. And we either respond by faith or fear. And so at at West, at our congregation, we're, we're really praying a lot in this season for Refuge Ministries, a ministry that I mentioned earlier. We, we serve and help guys struggling with addictions we just completed a, an apartment complex that's going to house anywhere between 25 and 45 men. 
And that's, this is the back end of the ministry. So total, there's, there's 80 guys uh, residentially right now today, 24-7, that we're serving and helping, and, and it's crazy. It sounds sexy, but it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. But God's doing an amazing work. I mean, he's, he's helping and he's healing a lot of people. And it's him. And like I said, our congregation just started meeting in the hilltop four weeks ago, three weeks ago. And so this is all new. And to be honest, I'm scared to death. I'm responding a lot in fear. If I had to confess, fear is, is my most common response. But I know that God's calling us to faith. I know he is. We see it in his word. And I'm encouraged by the disciples because I'm like, yeah, I would be worse than all them. They're always just, they're with him and they don't believe him. We know the need's great. I mean, the need here in Up Arlington's great. It might be different, but it's great. And that's why the Bible, I think the Bible, we need each other. The Bible calls us a body. We need each other to function fully. If you're uncertain where you fit, please begin with just prayer. Begin to ask God, lead me somewhere. What, what are you calling me to do? What are you calling me to do? Because we're all learning. We're all growing. None of us really have, <laughs> we, we speak confidently, but none of us have the answers. We're just trying to look to Christ. We're trying to model Christ. If God's calling you to do something, let one of us know. We want to empower you. We want to see you use your gifts. We want to see God move in you to advance his kingdom. And really, let's... I just... My prayer for us is that we be a church that relies on the Holy Spirit that we really submit to the Bible, that we don't lazily fall back on our gifting and try to generate some sort of hype to create a movement. Let's start with prayer. What is God calling you to do? Where is God leading you? How is God challenging you? What's something that God's leading you towards that it doesn't make sense? It doesn't make sense on paper. I pray for you. Like the disciples in the text today, let's bring the little we have and expect God to move mightily. Let's expect him to move. Let's expect him to do something with the little that we have. Because he's God and because he's good. Let's join Paul. And I'll end with this. I just love this. I know that, I know that this church, I've heard Nick say, this church was kind of started on this text. But let's join Paul when he says in 1 Corinthians, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness. We think of Paul, we don't think of weak, but he's even saying, I was with you in weakness and, and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message, they weren't, they weren't in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of... Of what? Of the Spirit and of power. It's God. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's good. So Jesus shows us radical compassion. He invites us into what he's going to do. And he provides. He always does. Let's pray. God, you're working in ways that we don't understand all the time. I think oftentimes we, (laughs) our question is, where are you? 
And, and then when things get good, it's really, fu- it's, it's, it's terribly, it's not funny, but we, uh, we forget about you. I just pray, God, that we would be in a place, I just, I want everyone in this room to experience your peace and your joy, but in a way that they remember you, they rest in you. We're busy with our jobs, with our families, with our friends, with our passions. But God, you're inviting us into your story. You're calling us to show compassion on your people. And a lot of the times it makes no sense. And so we run in fear and we, and we don't obey. And I just pray, God, that you would do a work in our hearts right now, that we would expect that oftentimes you're calling us to things that don't make sense. And I just pray that we trust you. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room that is not following you, my prayer, obviously, that we're a church, we want them to know you. And I just pray that you would begin to just invite them towards yourself. That our response this morning would be faith and not fear. Amen.